The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. If it's truly an accident, you know, you, a staffer gave you a box and you didn't know what was in it or something like that, it, it's certainly negligent. It would be different more difficult, I think, to say you intentionally did it knowing that it was unlawful. But to the extent that you take an action that you know you're taking that, uh, you know, maybe you think to yourself, I'm just going to bring it home for work. You don't mean any harm, uh, but you know you're doing it. You know you're not supposed to. That's clearly within the act. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 15th, 2023. The first 31 counts of the Trump Mar-a-Lago indictment all are under the Espionage Act, which has led to a lot of confusion, some of it intentional confusion, because Trump is not accused of spying. Heidi Kitrosser is a professor of law at Northwestern University and an expert on the Espionage Act. She wrote a recent piece in Lawfare about the Espionage Act and its history of prosecutions during the Trump administration. She joined me in the virtual jungle studio to talk about the law, its history, the problems with it, and how overbroad it is in some areas, and why none of those areas implicate the Trump indictment. It's an interesting conversation that covers media prosecutions, prosecutions of leakers and prosecutions of spies, and it'll give you all the background you need to understand the controversy about the charges against Trump. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 15th. We need to talk about the Espionage Act. Heidi, I want to start with the long, weird, tortured history of the Espionage Act and how it came to be quite as broad as the statute that you complain about in your piece on Lawfare the other day. When was the Espionage Act passed and what were the circumstances that led Congress to adopt such a Uh, amazingly broad criminal statute. Yeah, you know, this, the, the best histories that are out there seem to suggest that the statute came out so broadly, in part just out of a combination of Congress rushing, not fully understanding the consequences of what they were doing, and different people, you know, deciding to believe whatever interpretations they wanted to believe. So basically, the act first passed, it was enacted in 1917, on the eve of the US entry into World War One. And the one clear sort of takeaway from the legislative history of the time was that everyone was on board, everyone who you know, was on board with the law was at minimum on board with the idea of going after classic espionage, going after spying for foreign governments or enemies of the United States. The confusion arises, as we see um, in what are today section 793 D&E, which if you just look at the text of the statute, 
um, really do appear to cover everything from whistleblowing to the media in both D&E to, you know, possibly press publications themselves very chillingly in 793E. As to how that happened, well, the best history on this is actually uh, done by, uh, I'm forgetting the first names offhand, by, uh, but Edgar and Schmidt. Um, did a wonderful history in the early 1970s in a, in a law review article in the Columbia Law Review, where essentially they did the, the, the dirty work of looking through, you know, piles and piles and piles of legislative history from 1917 and again from the act's only major um, amendment in 1950. And again, concluded really what I started with, that the only thing for sure that the legislators clearly wanted to do uh, was to go after spies, um, and that the other consequences were for the most part unintended. Um, and perhaps the most interesting piece of legislative history that, that bears on the question of the breadth of the act today, um, and whether that was really intended or not, is the fact that in 1917, Woodrow Wilson was pushing very, very aggressively for the act's passage, uh, but he wanted it to be even considerably broader than it ended up being. And there were a couple of passages uh, that he pushed for, he actively lobbied for, that were not enacted. They were ultimately rejected. And one of the passages was a passage that would have permitted the president to essentially designate categories of information that would uh, count as the information that the act refers to when the act refers to national defense information. Um, and Congress actually rejected that. Um, but that is effectively the act today where the nature of the information effectively is defined, the nature of the information that's covered effectively is defined through the classification system. Sort of implicit in what I was just saying is the fact that the act predates the classification system. Uh, the classification system, uh, we didn't have a classification system uh, until uh, essentially the uh, the middle of World War II, and we did not have a peacetime classification system in 1951. Um, and so that is just one additional very important reason for why the act today is, I think, especially such a mismatch from what was intended back in 1917. Yeah, and of course, it also explains why the statute forbids the unauthorized disclosure of national defense information, not of classified information. Exactly. All right. So you've set this up beautifully. You've given us a lot to chew on. Uh, so let's start chewing. One of the complaints about the Trump indictment, and I think this one is mischievous and, you know, not a good faith complaint, um, but it does require a little bit of unpacking, is that he's been charged under the Espionage Act, but he is not charged with espionage. And that is, of course, because the Espionage Act, almost everybody except spies who's charged under the Espionage Act is not charged with espionage because the Espionage Act covers a, a set of activities that is much broader than spying. So unpack that for us. What are, broadly speaking, the list of things other than stealing material, classified material, and giving it to a foreign government, i.e. spying? What is the list of things that the Espionage Act on its face covers? And then we'll get into the list that that are actively ever prosecuted. Sure. So the uh, part of the act under which Trump is charged is 793E. Um, and that is a part of the act. I should have put the language right in front of me, but I'll have to paraphrase because I don't have it right in front of me. Um, but it essentially uh, criminalizes the conveyance, but also the retention. And retention is, is really the relevant part for purposes of, of Trump's uh, indictment. Um, it criminalizes the uh, uh, conveyance or the uh, retention of what this, the act calls national defense information. And for the conveyance component, it's the conveyance of it to uh, one who is not entitled to receive it. Um, and then the only other aspect of the act uh, is, well, and for the retention requirement, I should say, um, the, the additional gloss on that is if one retains it essentially without authorization 
and uh, refuses to return it upon request by someone who is authorized uh, to possess it. Um, and then there's also a, will a willfulness component. So what does that cover? Well, as I was sort of alluding to in the buildup, um, that covers a whole lot beyond spying. It covers, certainly it covers un unlawful retention if it's willful. Um, and the way that courts have interpreted uh, the willfulness requirement, it, it actually is quite broad, um, at least as respects documents, the retaining of documents, as opposed to the conveying, the oral conveying of information, which that gets a little more complicated when we're talking about oral conveyance. And I'm happy to talk about that later if you'd like, but just sticking with documents, which is what's at issue in the Trump case. All that courts have required um, with respect to willfulness is essentially that the uh, defendant uh, intentionally did the act, intentionally in this case, retained the documents um, and knew that it was unlawful. Um, the courts have been quite clear that that does not, there, there's no further requirement of, say, a bad faith purpose to harm the United States. Uh, one other thing I should add is that now, obviously, the, the words national defense information are remarkably broad. And the way courts have dealt with that over the years, because not surprisingly, that has been subject to uh, vagueness challenges and challenges that it's overbroad. Um, and courts have acknowledged that, you know, just on its face, national defense information can cover, you know, virtually any information that could in some way bear on topics relating to national defense. So to avoid vagueness and overbreath problems, they've added two additional glosses to it. One is that it has to be information that one could uh, reasonably believe, uh, and again, I don't have the, the uh, language right in front of me, but it's very loose language. It's something to the effect of that one has to be able to reasonably believe that the information could potentially harm the United States or help an enemy of the United States. Um, and that really is so broad. It's an objective standard. It's not a subjective standard. It could apply to virtually anything, certainly anything that's classified, um, given its breadth. And the other requirement is um, that the information be closely held. And the way courts have defined this closely held requirement is they've drawn on the classification system. As we mentioned earlier, the act doesn't talk about the classification system because the classification system did not exist when the act was passed. But what courts have said is, okay, well, we'll use the classification system um, as a tool to help us ensure that the information is closely held, that the government meant to keep it secret, um, and we will fold that under the words national defense information. So what's the upshot? What does that cover? Um, it can cover any sort of you know, intentional bringing of documents to one's home when one knows that one is not supposed to do that. And uh, the second thing it can cover, and, and this is what I've really focused on in my writings in the past, so this is the part I knew be know best, is that it can also cover what many people would refer to as whistleblowing. It can cover um, the uh, conveying of information to the press, like, for example, Edward Snowden did, or like Reality Winner famously did, uh, or a man named Terry Albury did when he leaked information to The Intercept regarding uh, FBI programs that he felt reflected racial profiling and other problems. Um, it can cover all of that because these are people who um, are passing on information that clearly meets the definition of national defense. And, and I think the media source context that I was just referring to also sort of brings home the idea that your intentions under the act beyond the bare requirements of willfulness are irrelevant under the act. Um, so for example, the district court in a, a media source case uh, about a man named uh, Kiriakou uh, said a few years back that there is no public interest offense. It doesn't matter if you meant well. It doesn't matter if you were trying to do a good thing. Uh, it doesn't even matter if one could reasonably conclude that on balance, the public interest was served. That really is irrelevant under the act. So it can include media sources. And, you know, chillingly, the language is broad enough that it could also cover press stories um, that that uh, deal with classified information, which, as you know, everyone knows, is uh, uh, are, are published all the time. And on that point, I'll just sort of end for now by saying that um, in the past, out of self-restraint, 
administrations have not gone after publishers of information. In fact, uh, they, they tended to not even go after media sources um, other than a few prosecutions until the Obama administration that really ramped it up. Uh, but they never went after, they never initiated prosecutions, did indictments on publishers until uh, in the administration of one Donald J. Trump uh, when they decided to prosecute Julian Assange. And uh, I guess the last thing I'll say on this is that, um, uh, you know, interestingly, the Trump administration, and this, of course, is what I talk about in my lawfare piece from this morning, is that the Trump administration itself prosecuted a number of media source cases, as well as a publisher case in the Julian Assange case during the Trump administration. So that makes it a little bit rich for Trump to say at this point, uh, well, gosh, I, I thought the act only covered spying. Right. So let's tick these off as categories here, right? So on the one hand, the act covers uh, spying. The act also covers stuff that's short of spying that's kind of preparatory to spying, right? So hiding, hoarding a lot of documents, maybe intending to give them uh, to a foreign power is going to be covered by the retention provisions. Absolutely, yes. Um, and that could be preparatory to spying, but it could also be preparatory to you know, writing your uh, memoirs or to leaking them to the press. Uh, then there's giving them to somebody not authorized to receive it, which is can be anybody from somebody who's paying you money to a member of the press. So it can, but it's it's essentially the leaks component. Yes, as distinct from the spying component, which is the foreign government or agent uh, situation. And then there is the, finally, the sort of the secondary transmission. If that person that you give it to, say, the Washington Post, then, or Julian Assange, then publishes it, that act of publication almost certainly protected by the First Amendment in, in the classic press sense, but charged in the Assange sense, that secondary transmission by a person who received it illegally subsequent to then publishing it is at least theoretically covered by the statute. That's absolutely right. The one thing, the one thing I would add is that um, uh, when you say that, that uh, the Press publications, you know, would almost certainly be covered by the First Amendment, although they are covered by the Act technically. Unfortunately, I do not read the case law as being a slam dunk at present in favor of the idea that publications uh, would necessarily be found to be protected by the First Amendment. To be clear, I absolutely think they should be. And, you know, to the extent that Cases come up, uh, Assange or others, uh, where that where that is tested. I will be, you know, loudly uh, advocating for why the First Amendment. But the Pentagon Papers pick case does leave a certain amount of doubt about yeah, that. Absolutely, yeah. That that's the key case. There, there's also uh, the Bartnicki case, you know, where you can make a differentiation. But absolutely, the Pentagon Papers case, just real briefly, um, you know, as most listeners probably know did reject the prior restraint that the Nixon administration sought to stop publication of the Pentagon Papers. That said, the per curiam just rested on the fact that it was a prior restraint, and a number of the concurring opinions suggested they might have seen things differently if it had been a criminal prosecution. Um, so I think that's a very dangerous and scary possibility, and it would be wrong from a First Amendment perspective, but it has been left open by the case law. Right. But can we say... Uh, so this is a bit of a side point for purposes of the present conversation, but can we say that with the exception of the Assange case and the Justice Department would argue that whatever Julian Assange was engaged in was not journalism, although a lot of journalists kind of disagree with that, there has never been a case and it's reasonable to expect that the Justice Department has no intention of bringing a case that is a secondary transmission case based, uh, you know, against a journalist doing simple journalism. 
Well, you know, I, I wish I could be quite so sanguine about it. I don't see the I don't see the Biden administration doing it. I don't see most administrations doing it. Um, I will say if we had a second Trump administration, it would not shock me, given his vitriol against the press. Um, if we had a, a DeSantis administration, it wouldn't shock me, given some of his rhetoric about the press. And on the Assange front, you know, as, as you know, and as many listeners probably know, a lot of press freedom organizations have been uh, quite loud in their displeasure uh, with the Assange indictment and even urged uh, Biden to drop it. Um, and the reason for that is because of the way in which they chose to charge it. Um, right. They chose to charge it in a way that wasn't really unique to anything Assange did. Um, I mean, parts of it are, but the Espionage Act charge against Assange essentially charges him for you know, cultivating a source and then publishing the information, um, which press freedom advocates say they're afraid that that, you know, just doesn't create enough of a distinction between, say, Assange and The Washington Post. Right. Although I suspect that at trial, the evidence against Assange will have a lot more to do with his liaison with foreign powers than is charged in the in, in the indictment itself and that there, you know, that the, the degree to which that case is kind of a strange mixture of journalism and actual espionage, it will be uh, much clearer at trial. I would hope that it would be much clearer at trial than it is in the indictment. I, I would certainly hope so too. I mean, I get, and I know this is a bit of a side point. I, I suppose the only thing I'd add be, beyond that, I, I certainly hope so, so as well, um, is that I think one of the problems with the capaciousness of the Espionage Act at present, as, as I talk about in that piece, um, the lawfare piece, is that from the perspective of the Espionage Act, um, it's Assange could just as easily be prosecuted uh, without all of the genuine espionage evidence. Um, but, but you know, that said, you know, as we talked about, until the Trump administration, prior administrations um, had refrain from going after third party publishers. And um, I, I certainly hope you're right. And I, I would think as a matter of trial strategy, you probably are right that if the Assange case ever goes to trial, uh, we will see the introduction of, you know, a lot more evidence that, that takes it outside of the realm of normal press operations. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life. What would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. All right. So let's talk about each of these baskets and let's deal with the, uh, the two super easy ones first because they have nothing to do with the Donald Trump case. So can we both agree that to the extent that the Espionage Act bans and criminalizes espionage? it is uncontroversial, right? There's no, Absolutely. there's no, you know, if you're stealing national defense information or classified information and giving it to the Chinese or the Russians, or there's nothing troubling about overbroad about the Espionage Act vis-a-vis -vis that stuff, right? Absolutely. Yes. And similarly, can we agree that this last basket, the secondary transmission as to you know, there's no conspiracy to do anything other than publish it, right? It's you're applying it to, you know, the the New York Times for 
publishing that there's a CIA secret prisons program, for example, or the Washington Post, I suppose, broke that. So, you know, you go after the Post or Dana Priest for uh, for that story, theoretically possible on the Esp- under the Espionage Act, to the extent the Espionage Act speaks to conduct like that, it's wildly overbroad and needs to be narrowed to the extent that it hasn't already been by executive action and judicial interpretation. Yes, we can absolutely agree. And I think, although obviously there's not universal support for that, I, I think that is an area where you have a lot of commentators who who would and who do agree on that front, which is which is why, you know, you've seen so much outcry about, you know, the importance of making sure there's not a slippery slope from from the Assange situation. And there's one other basket that we haven't talked about, which is, again, within the language of the Espionage Act, maybe it's it's really the Hillary Clinton case. Um, within the language of the Espionage Act may be covered, but in fact, the Justice Department never brings these cases, which is accidental spillages or uh, stuff where there is you know, mishandling, but without some aggravating factor. And it's fair to say that that stuff is inside the language of the Espionage Act, theoretically prosecutable, but in fact, never prosecuted. Um, you know, I, I so I think it's fair to say never prosecuted, um, at least as, as far as I know, I haven't done an exhaustive search um, to look into those types of scenarios. Um, as to whether it's within the language of the Espionage Act, that I think is very, very fact dependent, because given the willfulness to, to requirement, um, if it's truly an accident, you know, you a staffer gave you a box and you didn't know what was in it or something like that. It's certainly negligent. It would be diff- more difficult, I think, to say you intentionally did it, knowing that it was unlawful. But to the extent that you take an action that you know you're taking, that uh, you know maybe you think to yourself, "I'm just going to bring it home for work. You don't mean any harm, uh, but you know you're doing it. You know you're not supposed to." That's clearly within the act, right? Clearly within. Well, I'm thinking about the Hillary Clinton case specifically, where they are knowingly dealing with classified information on her private server, and they're doing it for the convenience of the secretary, and she's doing it. And there, there's nothing malicious about it. But as, as Jim Comey said at the time, it was sort of recklessly irresponsible. And those cases are just typically not prosecuted. Yeah. Yes, that's right. It, yes, they're clearly differentiable. Okay, so then we come to the two types of cases that are routinely prosecuted. And I want to talk about where you think the statute is overbroad with respect to these two types of cases. And then let's talk about the Trump case specifically, because I don't think it meets either of these. I don't think it's anywhere close to the line of stuff that should that is or should be controversial. Yeah, agreed. So the first type of controversial case is the intentional mishandling, but there's no evidence of disclosure, right? So somebody brings home a lot of material and kind of hoards it, but there's, you know, it's kind of preparatory to some kind of dissemination or because they're just kind of a hoarder. And, you know, you can say, well, there's not really any evidence that anything really bad happened, but the government takes that stuff really seriously. Yeah. Yeah. In that type of scenario, I and it, putting aside the possibility that it's preparatory to, you know, something that's sort of squarely First Amendment oriented, such as it's part of, you know, what will then go on to be a uh, passing on of information to the media. Putting that aside, assuming we're talking about the carelessness, like the Hillary Clinton situation that, that you were referencing, uh, someone doing it for, vac- uh, um, for convenience, nothing really bad happens, but they know they're not supposed to do it. Um, and they know that it, it essentially amounts to retention um, insofar as they have it at home or on their private server or what have you. In, in that situation, I think it would fall within the act, but I think that's an area where uh, prosecutorial discretion 
reasonably comes into play uh, and doesn't, and you know, will often lead to uh, non-prosecution. As to whether there's a First Amendment issue there, um, I, I don't really see one. Um, again, unless we're talking about something in connection with a media source prosecution. All right. So I, I, I think. I agree with you that this is an area where it's really guided by prosecutorial discretion. And in my experience, I'm curious whether you agree with this, the real issue in these cases is volume. That, you know, if you have one document at home by mistake, or one document at home and they don't know if it's by mistake, or maybe uh, you brought it home for convenience or whatever, they're going to look at that very differently from if you have a thousand documents at home or if you have some very large number of, say, hundreds of documents at very high levels of classification is going to be seen really differently from a few documents, to use the Mike Pence example, mixed in with lots and lots of other stuff and no evidence that you'd kind of retained it intentionally. Size matters. Yes, yes, I think that's right. I think size matters in this situation. And uh, I also think, you know, as as you just sort of suggested with uh, the way you phrased the Mike Pence example, um, also, you know, in some of these cases, the willfulness is just not so clear cut, right? If it truly right. was accidental, then you it's not even clear it fits within the statute, right? But even to the extent that, that you get past that hurdle, um, I think that's right. I think that the size matters. And also the circumstances beyond that um, in terms of, you know, how intransigent are you? And, and that takes us into the Trump case. So I won't get into that yet, other than to just say, you know, obviously the Trump case is very different, not only because of what's alleged in terms of the volume, uh, in terms of the nature of the information, um, the, you know, the nature in terms of how potentially damaging it is, you know, but perhaps more than anything else in terms of his intransigence. Um, but, I'll, but I'll hold off now until we get into Trump specifically. Right. So one more thing before we do, which is I think the area where you have the most concerns about the statute other than in the media publication secondary transmission area, which is in the case of people who do it intentionally with the ambition, maybe completed, maybe not, of giving stuff to the press. So I guess I'm you know, putting on my my apologist for the national security state <laughs> hat, why shouldn't it be illegal to steal material, even for a good reason or, you know, good cause, uh, whistleblowing, steal information you're sworn to protect and give it to somebody who's not authorized to receive it for purposes of that person transmitting it to not just the Russians, not just the Chinese, which we all agree is espionage, but to give it to the New York Times so that they can share it with everybody on the face of the planet. Why shouldn't that be illegal? Yeah, that's a really hard and, and important question. And as I talk about in the piece and as I've, uh, the lawfare piece, and as I've uh, written about at length elsewhere, um, I, I do think that the act is overbroad in that respect and that at minimum, uh, there should be a public interest defense or some sort of First Amendment balancing that, that I wish, uh, that I would have liked to see courts bring into the mix. Um, as to the why of that, because I know that's a tough question, um, I guess I would answer it in two ways. So first, uh, let me try to give just the you know, sort of one or two sentences, and then I'll elaborate just a tiny bit more. Um, so I suppose the one or two sentence reasons would be that given what, uh, as you know, there is, you know, wide agreement about across the wide longstanding agreement, really as old as the classification system itself, and across the political spectrum, about how incredibly overbroad uh, the classification system is, given that, the notion that a classification stamp uh, wielded by one of, you know, several thousand people or, you know, well over a thousand people with either original classification status or the millions of people with uh, derivative classification authority, the notion that a classification stamp 
um, can essentially take that information outside of the realm of free speech that uh, warrants at least some sort of judicial examination for its dangerousness, um, I think is very uh, is very deeply dangerous. And I guess the slight elaboration on that, that, that pretty much sums it up, but I suppose the slight elaboration on that would be to say, um, if we just step back and you know forget about the classification system for a minute and look at the way courts traditionally apply the First Amendment to restrictions on speech. Um, normally, a court will say if somebody is told, oh, you can't, uh, you, you know, you have to go to jail because you said this thing and it's very dangerous. You riled up a crowd or you uh, passed out this pamphlet and you shared information that's considered dangerous. Um, normally, that would be extraordinarily difficult for the government to justify because that's a content based restriction. Um, it would either have to fall into an unprotected speech category, for example, if it were incitement that um, the person intends to cause and is uh, imminently likely to cause unlawful activity, either it would have to fall into that very difficult category or the government would have to show that it falls under a law that is the least restrictive means to achieve a compelling government interest. Um, as soon as one is working with classified information, all of that goes away. Um, and under the Espionage Act and without too much adjustment, the way courts for the most part have treated it, um, that just takes it entirely outside of the First Amendment. Um, and I think that's really problematic. I guess the one thing I would add, I, you know, because I take your point about the fact that we're talking about government employees who, you know, not only government employees, but national security employees or contractors who, you know, sign multiple documents indicating they know their obligations about classified information. So I take the point that that should put the these people in a different category who have, you know, essentially signed away what might otherwise be their free speech rights to freely talk about what they did at work. Um, and there, I would say that I think courts have the right idea um, when they say, look, you can't completely wave away your First Amendment rights in all settings because there's also a public interest in the information. Um, and that's also true of government employees. Now, it's true that, you know, government treats or courts, sorry, treat um uh, national security employees, they, they sort of put them in an exceptional uh, category uh, where they don't apply the usual rules. But I really think very similar reasoning applies, that there's a strong public interest information in a lot of what uh, goes on in government and that government employees learn about. And although they certainly uh, don't have unbridled license to say whatever they like, especially involving national security information, I think some degree of protection is appropriate. Um, certainly not absolute protection, but as I've talked about in the past, at minimum, um, I'd like to see something along the lines of a statutory public interest defense. Uh, which is something that, by the way, Yochai Benkler and I think some others um, have also proposed. Or, you know, I, I would like to see courts take more seriously the First Amendment implications and apply some kind of balancing test, even if it's one that, you know, is weighted slightly toward the government. So in your world, an Edward Snowden case would look like the government proves that he purloined this material, gave it to Bart Gelman and Glenn Greenwald and company, uh, and that he did so knowing that it was illegal. Uh, and then he responds uh, with the kind of affirmative defense, uh, I did it because I believed that it was in the public interest for the public to know this information. I guess my question is, what is the jury then asked to decide whether he believed that in good faith or whether he was right that it was the, as in if they determine, well, he's, it's kind of like a, you know, a stand your ground law, uh, where, you know, hey, I, I reasonably believed that, uh, this guy was a threat to me. So I shot him, uh, is good enough in some states as an affirmative defense. Is the, is the standard whether you actually believed it or is the standard whether it was in fact in the public interest for it to become public? Right. So I think the standard has to be an objective one, um, particularly when you know, you're talking about uh, potential national security implications. It's not enough that somebody meant well, um, however wrongly. But yes, I, I think that, and, and I think that this would ideally be mapped out uh, by statute, although courts uh, could certainly 
sort of help refine it further through either, you know, statutory interpretation or to the extent they're looking at it from a First Amendment perspective through constitutional common law analysis. But, you know, factors could include things like um, to what extent did the person uh, leak without reviewing, right, what the material was? Did they leak a few discrete documents that they had reason to believe uh, showed wrongdoing, for example, that, that they reasonably believed showed wrongdoing? Um, or did they leak, you know, uh, uh, thousands of documents uh, that it turned out included some really damaging things, uh, most or all of which were not particularly in the public interest? All right. So I am totally not with you on the standards <laughs> of reform here. Darn it. Uh, I thought I'd convince you. No, no, no. But uh, <laughs> fortunately, we actually don't need to resolve this uh, argument, which is a fascinating discussion and very worth having. But I think we can actually save it for another day because I think we both agree that the allegations in the Trump indictment are solidly on the side of whatever you, whatever defenses you created would not apply to the conduct at issue in the Trump indictment. Is that fair? Absolutely, absolutely fair. Um, you know, with, of course, the lawyer's caveat that all we know we're at this point are, well, we, we, there, a lot has been reported, but we also, we've heard some recordings and things. Um, but for the most part, most of what we know, uh, come from the indictment. Of course, these are allegations, but based on the allegations, if we assume the allegations are true, I absolutely agree with you. This is squarely in the act. I don't see any basis for a concern that this raises questions of overbreath or that in my ideal world, there'd be a public interest defense. I don't see any of those problems here based on the indictment. So let's just go through. So uh, let's imagine we reformed the statute in the fashion that would make Kitrasser very happy and <laughs> Wittes very uncomfortable. And so you had a public interest defense and you had a real First Amendment limit presumably, this is going to sound like I'm joking, but I'm not joking at all. These are the facts alleged in the indictment. Presumably, no First Amendment limit would be challenged uh, or would be, would be tested by an indictment that alleged that, for example, you talked about war plans to uncleared people by way of responding to statements by the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff about a possible attack on Iran, right? That yeah, that's certainly how I see it. Um, you know, again, assuming the allegations are true, um, you know, he could certainly try to make the argument, but I I don't see it passing the laugh test. And similarly, there's no like public interest argument for having, you know, a giant collection of, you know, a couple hundred classified documents, some with SAP and, and SCI markings on them stored in your bathroom. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, I mean, and maybe in, maybe in the interest of the public membership of Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> it could, right. It could make for some great keepsakes um, for the, for the dues paying members. But beyond that, uh, I think the public at large uh, is not served by this. I think that's fair to say. And there's no public interest in, in the ability of former presidents to show off by occasionally referencing <laughs> classified material that they've contained and sort of showing maps to people, but saying, oh, keep your distance, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely right. That's how I see it as well. So any way you reform the Espionage Act, which we both agree needs some reform, needs some modernization, it's more than 100 years old, the core of of it as applied to this case that you can't run off after leaving the White House with hundreds of classified documents and store them in your golf club and refuse to give them back, there are, there's no conceivable world in which that either should be legal uh, normatively, but more to the point, if you gave the advocates of reform of the Espionage Act, sort of everything they wanted, that would still be solidly indictable. 
Yeah, that's certainly how I see it. Um, and, and you know, we do hear uh, a lot from Trump's allies uh, suggesting all of a sudden they've, you know, found religion and, and they think that if the Espionage Act does cover this, it's way too broad. I, you know, I, I, I see it quite differently um, that, you know, as we've discussed, there are other ways uh, in which I think the Espionage Act is very overbroad, but I have no problem uh, with a reformed Espionage Act that would squarely cover this. Um, and, and just to elaborate a tiny bit, um, I, I guess I would, you know, to sum up why I think that's so, I mean, I think you've, uh, you've really gotten at that in your last few questions, but just to kind of sum it up, um, I'd say there are two reasons why, in my view, uh, this case doesn't pose a problem, assuming that the allegations are correct. One has to do with the apparent absence of any sort of public interest factor, right? As, as we've discussed, that he you know, appeared based on the allegations to essentially be hoarding them. It's unclear why. Um, probably the best case scenario is simply he was hoarding them because he just felt like they belonged to him and it was a point of pride that he wanted to have them, you know, or perhaps that he wanted to show them people to people, which obviously makes it worse. Um, the, the two allegations of his showing them to people involved his essentially trying to impress people. Um, so I see no public interest factor. That's one. And then the second factor is that I mentioned before that one issue with the Espionage Act is the you know, tremendous sort of bloatedness of the classification system. And so there is a worry, I think, sometimes in, uh, let's say, media source cases that somebody was disclosing something that, that really probably shouldn't have been classified in the first place, at least based on the indictment. Uh, we have actually seen the prosecutors uh, in the summary of the information that the indictment is based on uh, suggesting with some specificity that this was stuff that, that really was uh, important to keep a secret. So that's sort of the other reason why I see nothing in the indictment suggesting this gets into an area of, you know, a problematic application of the act. One other question. Should we change the name of the statute or yes. if, if, if we're going <laughs> to reform the statute, should we lop off the part that deals with espionage and keep calling that the Espionage Act and call the rest maybe the uh, leaks or unauthorized disclosure of classified information act? Yes, I totally agree with you. Um, I think as we're seeing in this case, it, uh, it, it, it precipitates a lot of mischief that an act that punishes so much more than espionage is called the Espionage Act. So I absolutely agree with you. What I'd like to see is the spying part lopped off, um, perhaps, you know, perhaps tweaked a bit to update what, what have you to incorporate the classification system, um, but made its own, you know, much narrower Espionage Act. Um, and then we can talk about how to deal with leaks, whether there should be any kind of public interest defense for media sources, et cetera, in an in entirely separate statute. Yeah, I think that would be particularly healthy because if we called it the Unauthorized Disclosure of Classified Information Act, uh, we could call it the UDCIA. <laughs> Heidi Kittrasser, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer on quick notice is the most excellent Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, are you a material supporter of Lawfare? Because, you know, you really need to be. We need everybody who listens to chip in. And there are a lot of you who are not choosing to do that. You're, you're hearing the ads instead of getting access to our cool subscriber-only stuff. So change all that. Come over to the light Get rid of the ads, patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.